0: Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Claire Weems, who is an ADHD coach, co-founder of Kunst des Funkelns, and we'll get into what that means during the episode. And um, she is very much into play-based learning, and she is an up-and-coming TikToker. And as a father of daughters, I know exactly what that means. So uh, without further ado, Claire, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thank you. Stoked to be here. (laughs) Thanks
0: for coming along. Now, uh, just to orient everybody, whereabouts in the world are you?
1: I live in Vancouver, Canada, and that's also where my club is based, though, mind you, location is not as important as it used to be. But uh, yeah, I've trained and started teaching here in Vancouver.
0: Lovely. And yes, we're recording this at the beginning of, or middle of January 2021 with the pandemic still asking around outside. So mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so hopefully future listeners to the show in a year's time or so will have only a vague idea as to why you might not be able to get out and train it's it's true <laughs> we can we can but hope um okay so how did you get started with the whole sword thing
1: uh, i started with larping that was the first time i got a sword in my hand like 13 14 15 years ago i lost count now but uh um i mean I, it's definitely close closely tied to that whole play-based learning um playing with swords is fun and that uh that was really appealing i was like what do you mean i can just be a fantasy character and and swing a sword around and go to battles and that's i can just do that for a weekend and um and that was the start of it and then uh i kind of started looking more and more into a martial arts type of approach to it and that eventually evolved to where I am now.
0: Okay, and so you didn't go straight from larping to mm. um, to starting a club. I don't think. You, you, no. <laughs> so, so <laughs> no. Where, where did you where did you get your original training from?
1: So it was larping, and then I uh, started to do um, heavy armed combat in the SCA, okay. so the Society for Creative Anachronism, and it's the heavy armed combat is. Um, kind of a blend of stick fighting and what I feel is a very saber fighting kind of style of movement. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was where actual training started for me, um, more specific about defensive, um, kind of perspective and how to think about other people's bodies in relation to mine and how how power generation works. And that's where actual teaching started. and, but again, uh, in, in actual application, I think it's a play-based culture, even if some of the people in the, in the community wouldn't call it play-based. It's the fighting in the SCA is absolutely play, and it's wonderful that way. Okay. Uh,
0: so you're, okay, you ha- you're a co-founder of Kunst des Funkelns. And that is a very unusually named martial arts school. And I am not a German speaker and many of the listeners are not either. So would you care to explain exactly what that means?
1: Yeah. Um, uh, John Mills, my, the co-founder, uh, my teaching partner, um, and I both love wordplay and we're both queer. And so we very much wanted that to be part, those two things to be part of our identity and how we present ourselves outward to the community and um, KDF, is a very well understood acronym for um, the German tradition of um, historical martial arts. Mm-hmm. So we ended on that acronym, but I was like, okay, well, what, what can the F be? I just don't, I don't want to be just meaning swords. I want it to mean something personal. And, uh, and I was like, well, what, what's the word for glitter in, in, in German? So <laughs> funken is effectively the transitive verb form of glitter or sparkle. Um, so it's like the art of sparkling and uh, within Valkyrie, which is the organization that um, uh, Valkyrie Martial Arts kind of took us in uh, when we left our previous space. Um, they affectionately call us Sparkle School, which is uh, very, very sweet. <laughs>
0: that's fantastic. Yeah. And, and I gather, I gather you're, you're mostly into Messer, is that correct?
1: I am. I'm super passionate about Messer. And that's really the reason why because um, the film started uh john and i used to just weightlift together and i was grumbling at one point about how there wasn't really any good options for me to train master here in vancouver and then uh john had the brilliant idea of why don't we just start our own club and i was like wait wait i'm allowed to do that isn't someone going to tell me that i can't it turns <laughs> out no one has the authority to tell me that i can't do that and uh we're going into our third year wow. so oh okay. god Yeah, well, maybe as of August in 2021, that'll be our full third year, I think. Time is strange, but um, yeah.
0: Okay, so you started a club a couple of years ago. How did you, I mean, a lot of the people who listen have started clubs or are thinking about starting clubs Mm -hmm. or are stuck in places with no clubs, and so they have no choice but to think about starting a club. So it might be useful to hear about how you went about it, who totally. you got help from, how you arranged it.
1: Absolutely. Um, personally, I work really well with a collaborator, um, especially in martial arts training. It's really good to have a training partner because so many of the manuals are framed as plays between two or more individuals, yeah. um, and it's and it's really beneficial to have um, a, a training partner or a studying partner, both for. Um, that reason and, and for sharing motivation. Um, One of the things that John and I early on, while we were still developing our student base, kind of committed to each other is that even if um, we had no students show up, we would still be training together. We're still members. And um, that mentality has served us really, really well. Um, I really benefited as someone who didn't initially see myself as a martial arts coach. I had a coaching background from before. I had a pretty strong movement background from before through dance and through training in historical martial arts myself. Um, I had those two pieces, but I didn't see myself as combining them. And I think um, John has a really, really deep background in martial arts. And so to have his full trust as an equal colleague in our in our club was was pretty significant. Um, where I was like, oh, you don't really ever feel a need to question where I'm taking things in class. And like, while we do definitely discuss like pedagogy um, and, and that kind of thing, it's never, uh, we're always very much on equal footing. And, and I think being treated that way um, was enormous for me to really recognize it. Like, this is my club. And I am a martial arts coach, and I get to claim that without criticizing myself and doubting that.
0: I had the same thing like 20 years ago when I started my school as a professional. And mm-hmm. I showed up, and the students kind of, they, well, they, they, I guess, were kind of primed to expect me to be the teacher and everything. And so their acceptance wasn't that hard to get. But it was when martial arts instructors in other much more established fields, would like show up to a seminar of mine, and these are people who've been training maybe since I was like three years old, just to see what this historical martial arts thing is all about. And then come back to another seminar a few months later and then mm. ask me to come and teach a seminar in their school. It's like do you do, do you mean I'm actually yeah. I I actually have chops? Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> it was and it I, was I, like I think... Yeah, it's, it's it's makes such a difference.
1: The other, the other piece that that really had a huge impact perspective-wise, and I can't remember, I think I got this concept from another place. It wasn't from within martial arts, but basically no one can contribute what I can contribute. My voice, my um, focuses, my background, my passions are unique, just like every single other person who's contributing to the arts and the community um, Like the workshops that I, you know, keep in my back pocket, um, the things that I provide to my students, they can't actually get that from anyone else. Um, so knowing that and knowing that my students come to our classes for that specifically, they could go to another class. They, there's lots of good teaching out there. Valkyrie is very rich with good coaching. Um. But they come to my class because they like what John and I provide. And people have really enjoyed my workshops because they really liked the content in them. And that, that's just like my workshops alone and my passions. And recognizing that no one else has done those things before. Um, prioritized and explored the things that I looked at. I'd never heard of workshops kind of touching on those topics. What sort of topics are uh, you talking about? So one of one, one, of my first workshops, which was at uh, Big Gay Sword Day, the very first Big Gay Sword Day, um, was Design Your Own Good Time, which was talking about... Okay. Um, I guess there's lots talk- of ways to
0: do that that has nothing to do with swords.
1: <laughs> I, but I mean, uh, well, the, the workshop itself could apply to any any yeah. sphere of life. Um, yeah. But basically, it's about identifying why you're showing up to the activity in the first place. That's it's true. a process of identifying that so that you can identify the kind of... Um, you know, both values and outcomes that you want out of your training. And from there, developing priorities in your training relationships.
0: That's really sensible. I see Because
1: it from the, it's such yeah, a huge part of the quality of our experience.
0: Right. And I, I see it from the other perspective where as the teacher with like 20 students in class or whatever, they're all there for slightly different things. Mm-hmm. And occasionally someone will be there for something that I can't or won't give them. Absolutely. But I have to kind of intuit why they're there because an awful lot of students don't know really what they're really there for. Classic example, right? There's a, a common thing that happens where a student shows up to the beginner's course, buys a sword in like the second week and quits in the third week because what they really wanted was to buy a sword, but they felt they weren't entitled to buy a sword unless they were learning how to use it showing up to the beginner's course means they're actually learning swords now so they can buy a sword. Then they've never actually got what they want. So they stop.
1: I would, I would <laughs> guess that they would go home with that sword after they've left the course and still feel kind of unfulfilled because the sword is still, there's still another layer underneath the sword of what they want. Like what is it? The sword brings them. Like for me, I know that if I picked up a sword, there's still, I want to, I want to use that sword. I want to have it in my hand And feel something in my heart. Uh, Okay. I absolutely agree. I'm the same. I don't collect
0: swords. I have lots of swords, but I don't (laughs) collect swords, right? Because I'm more interested in the the use than the object. But there are Mm -hmm. plenty of people who, like you at Oak Shop, for example, as far as I'm aware, wasn't a historical fencer at all. Um, Mm -hmm. But he had an enormous sword collection because for him, the object was the thing. Owning that object was the thing he wanted
1: yeah yeah absolutely you
0: see the same thing in in woodwork tools for example um you know i have i once counted i had 13 different hammers and that (laughs) that sounds ridiculous until you realize that that they're all completely different hammers and for me they all have their own use but there are people who have literally thousands of similar you know plane woodworking planes or whatever because they're collectors they're not they're not that yeah. interested necessarily in yeah. the, they're interested in the collection. So yeah, I think a good proportion of those people who bought a sword went home totally happy because they've actually got what they fundamentally wanted.
1: Yeah. Yeah. True. True. Absolutely. Um, I think one of the other things that that, that workshop provides, um, because you, as you say, like when those students show up to a beginner's course, they don't always know what it is that they're that's drawing them in. Um, it starts to provide them the language to be able to self-direct whether it's like, you know, if they're in, um, if they're just in free time sparring, they can, they can negotiate training goals or okay. objectives or, or, or games with their training partners. And it builds that skill, um, which creates a lot of independence. Um, sure. And okay. that, that agency is really powerful.
0: Right. This, this is far too useful to go, oh, that was interesting. Now tell me about how you interpret <laughs> message from the text, right? Um so if you don't mind, I think it would be good for the listeners to get like some solid like tips or approaches totally. to do that for themselves.
1: Absolutely. Um, go for it? Absolutely. So the the opening question with that workshop was like what makes your heart like like if you think of swords and think of the big excitement of it, what does that look like? And so for some people it's winning a tournament and for other people, it's, it's, you know, being on the battlefield. And, and that, that dream is really the thing to chase. Um, or some people it's, you know, mastery of a very specific art. And so that starts to lead you down that road. Um, so then you say, okay, what, what in my training serves that dream? What part of it is it? very precise repetitions of certain movements. Is it developing improvisational skills? Um, is it making, uh, reproducing historic um, garments and armor? So all of the, this, these dreams inform what practices you wanna focus on. Um, and that's, that's often the thing to come back to, is to come back to the dream when you're feeling frustrated with your training or frustrated with your focus, um, going back to what like really makes your heart feel good. Um, and the other piece of that is with your training relationships, how can you um, make those relationships benefit that goal? And that sometimes involves explicitly discussing it with your training partners. Is it okay? I would like to try this very specific um, motion. Sometimes it's okay. Well, I'm working on this thing and I'm going to keep working on this thing. Um, and by identifying your priorities as an individual practitioner it gives you a lot more confidence to negotiate those things you you actually recognize what you're trying to to um to get out of the the hours that you're spending
0: yeah it's it's a difficulty from a coach's perspective or an instructor's perspective when you have a room full of people who all have somewhat different goals Mm -hmm. and intentions so how would you handle that?
1: Um, we generally, and um, Valkyrie also shares this approach. I, I think that my teaching has been influenced by the fact that I was a student with Valkyrie for many years. Um, when you have um, more open, not so much drills, but I would call them movement games, um, stimulus and response type patterns, people can play, you can, you can um Direct a priority where it's like, okay, um, this is the stimulus, and that um, informs kind of what reactions you're going to play with. But people can also start to think about their own priority. Like, for example, maybe they're thinking about flinch reactions, so they're trying to think of their own response, or maybe they're thinking about um, flow of motion, or maybe they're thinking about power generation. So even within those those movement games, or or even drills as well this can also apply to they can think of what their focus is cuz their their body's movement has many different so many different aspects and even just thinking about that aspect as we're moving in our bodies changes the way our body moves sure. and still serves the drills that our coaches are providing for us
0: okay so which
1: kind of shifted the framing from coach to student uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. um which is, which is- but I guess it's trusting the students that uh they will kind of find the balance and if when when I see them over focusing on something just shifting in um just shifting away to a a different movement. If if I'm seeing someone hyper-focusing to the detriment of their experience, maybe they're getting frustrated because they feel a tension between the exercise and their focus. Um, Maybe uh, they're getting distracted, um, just gently shifting away from that. And there's a nice balance that kind of organically happens, I've generally found.
0: Yeah, I see one thing I've found... Over the last, I don't know, maybe five, six, seven years or so, instead of showing up and teaching a prepared class, I show up and I ask the students what they want and why they're there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, the the usual thing I say, let's say it's a rapier class. I'll say, if I'm Salvatore Fabris, that makes you the king of Denmark. So yes. how do you think that relationship should work?
1: Yeah, it's right. a service relationship.
0: Precisely. And, but... Students are so conditioned to, they show up and they do as they're told and they have the class and they enjoy the class because of yeah, awards. swords yeah. and that's that. Getting them to articulate what they actually want is really hard. And it then is. getting them to actually articulate what they actually truly want. Because very often they'll ask for something that they think is appropriate as yeah. opposed to the thing they actually want.
1: I've found some really interesting um spontaneous insight and, and curiosity. Um so our classes are structured into um kind of unarmed stuff, armed stuff, and then what we call book time, which is okay. some kind of study. It could it used to be from um Lichtenauer's manual back when we were in person, but now it covers a whole bunch of things. We watched um Escrima um Visay and Escrima uh, Filipino martial arts. Last week, um, we've looked at large paintings and talked about what's being conveyed in large-scale paintings of battles. Uh, so, and I found that with those things, just general open-ended questions, the students will answer those questions through the lens of what's going on in their mind, what's their priority, and what they're thinking of. And so, you start. I start to get insight on on what they're. Focusing on, and it's almost always something that I could never have guessed. But by providing something that they can kind of look into and explore, um, they start to pull out of that what their mind is wanting. Um, one of the most interesting ones was when we all sat down and researched the history of dueling laws, okay. um, which was which is really interesting. So we saw, you know, who had um, kind of a more uh, who had more of a background in like academic research that kind of pulled out a piece. We had someone who kind of looked at it from a kind of a psychology, sociology perspective. And the, these are not necessarily trained minds. I'm using these terms to mm-hmm. describe like specific perspectives yeah. um, because there's no need for any kind of training to do this, but someone's like, okay, this is the, this is the different relationships in play. This is the different Maybe the cultural context of this. Why? Why would these weird things be important? Why do you need six friends? Why is it seven guys on seven guys, and it's two guys who's fighting plus their six friends, and then the last man standing is the one is that decides the victor? Like that's an actual thing you'll find in Swabi and dueling law. Um, and so, are, watching my students pull insights or pull. And the biggest thing is what are the what are the new questions they're asking. So I just provide a very open question and where they keep questioning to me shows me what their, what their brain is wanting more of. Mm. And this is very much informed by my background, working with children, doing early childhood education stuff. People will children, any human being will be naturally drawn to what they crave. Yeah. So if you provide something open-ended to explore, people will naturally go into what is most interesting to them.
0: Okay. Uh, so how do you um, – if you ha- you're have you trying to get the, the students to be honest about what they actually want and have a language for articulating what they're really there for, okay? So what do you do when somebody has fundamental training goals that you can't – help them with for either practical or ethical reasons?
1: Um I I would be, I think I would s- discovering that I think is uh usually a prize It's not a thing that like sometimes it'll show up very clearly, very quickly of like this is what I want to win in competitions. i'm like I'm not as much as I would I love corner coaching for mm-hmm. during the competition, I love doing that. I'm not the kind of coach who can train and prepare someone for a competition. Yeah, that's a clear a goal. Skill. It's a specific skill. I have enormous respect for people who do have it. It's not my skill. Um, so that's one that, that, you know, for practical reasons, I could very clearly say I couldn't do. Um, but for ethical reasons, let's say um, someone is doing, is getting involved in, in martial arts because they're um, in a situation where being, fight, being able to fight is necessary for them. I wouldn't really know how to approach that situation. And to me, and I I imagine there are other ethical complications, like actually here's another good one. Um, I was dating someone recently who really wanted me to train them. And that um, I was like, what do you, it's, it's awkward. Um, Mostly because I have been, I personally have been abused by an instructor. Um, And so for me, that's a very sensitive that's a very very sensitive thing um which is not to say that like uh their request was from a from an from a bad place um no, it, sure. for me i i couldn't ethically do that and be treating myself right yeah um sure. also like I mean, the things that they wanted i wasn't the like there were people that i could direct them to immediately and say you're gonna get you're gonna get better at murdering someone with a knife <laughs> theoretically air quotes Error <laughs> quotes on the murdering someone with a knife. We're not actually yeah. trying to do violence here. We're playing um, with, you know, like Kai of like, if you want to learn how to, how to stab someone, you go to, you go to the experts. I, am good at Messer. Um, so I'm not going to ever give someone the misconception that I can do something that I'm not going to be comfortable with. I know I can feel that my teaching is immediately compromised. And I know what that sensation is yeah. when yeah, I am having to constantly filter myself because I'm not in a teaching relationship that I'm comfortable with. And usually, even if I don't know exactly why I'm uncomfortable, that discomfort is usually an ethical one.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I remember I got a phone call six, seven years ago from a guy who wanted me he 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 come, he had an argument with someone, they were going to duel with small swords for real to settle it. And would I train him? And I'm like, okay. The moment you told me that your intention is to actually try and murder somebody with these skills. Yeah. yeah. You've put me in a difficult position. Yes, I totally I mean that's that is literally what I trained to be able to do. Right? But yeah. but but because yeah, my emphasis is entirely on like, mortal combat and training people to be actually able to actually, yeah. right. Um, because precisely because that's where all the interesting ethical stuff happens. Totally. Um, so, huh. so, <laughs> so I said, okay. That makes me think so, of something
1: I'm going to put a pin in about uh, mortal combat and ethics, um, yeah. but finish your thought. Yeah. Well,
0: I, I, I said, well, okay. If I train you and you win, I'm an accessory before the fact in a murder. Yeah. If I train you and you lose, I'm an accessory before the fact in attempted murder and not very good at my job. There is literally no win state for me here. And also I have children, right? I can't justify risking, I don't know, 15 years in prison for your very strange sense of honor. Yeah. So if you, if you just come and ask me to train you for a hypothetical duel and never once mentioned that you were actually training for a real duel and I could have done it with a clear conscience and you'd probably have done just fine. But as soon as yeah. you told me that, yeah. There, yeah. There's, just, there's just no... Absolutely. Um,
1: and I, I, I want to believe, and I, I know there are people out there who are... I'm going to use the phrase ethically compromised.
0: Okay. But to this guy's credit, about nine months later, mm-hmm. he called me again to yeah. apologize for having put me in that position.
1: That's, that's fantastic. And I think that really speaks to the fact that having um, a good sense of one's own ethics and boundaries and being clear and strong in that impacts other people in really positive ways. Sure. Um, because he, you know, remembered that limit of yours and it stuck with him like right. it was in his mind and it probably has affected him uh, which i think is really wonderful um talking about the ethics uh of mortal combat and murder um i think that's really interesting because so much of our sport is focused on um movements and and behaviors that will end in someone's death yep it's hyper focused on that um, yes. and i think something that i that I circling back to stuff that is unique about what I'm passionate about and what I deliver. I'm not really interested in murder. (laughs) I'm interested in the stuff that where both people get to walk away alive. And the interesting things, because it is actually, in my opinion, more difficult to effectively disarm, disable wrestle lethal weapons. Yes. So if you're you're with with messers, exactly
0: guaranteeing your opponent's survival is a trick it's really hard
1: and that's where my fascination is um and and uh, because like and um le kuchner has an enormous amount of content to that he even has little comments where it's like okay well this is how you just like an insulting wound like the kind of thing where like you could you could cut the person with the short edge on this on this final movement, or you could just slap them with the flat of your blade on their forearm to embarrass them. Um, (laughs) And, and, and he, uh, his writing is explicitly aware of that nuance in a way that I really enjoy because I think that's in terms of what I want to be doing with my friends sparring wise, that's what I want to be doing. I don't want to fight to end up in just one of us getting stabbed. I want to, I want it to be difficult and contentious and, And wrestly, because that's really one of the beauties of Messer is that it is a very wrestly sword. Um, (laughs) And when you're wrestling, it's that you have generally decided not to stab someone. Because if you're wrestling for more than a couple seconds and you haven't pulled out your dagger and got them right in the kidney, you chose not to. Yeah. And to me, that is more fun. And I am in this sport for the fun. Um just stabbing someone isn't isn't I mean I love rapier. It's very good at what it does. But um it always felt very
0: rapier that way.
1: It yeah, exactly. It it had a lack of intimacy that uh um was why I kept craving messer after cuz I, I did a workshop with Jess Finley um in messer mm-hmm. god like 9 years ago now and it wow. never left my mind. It never left my mind. Um, because of that that messiness in closeness and so to be able to navigate that messiness and closeness in a way that's on purpose to me is really technically challenging and fun
0: yeah we get similar so in in Fiore's longsword we get a lot of that too Mm -hmm. Um, and there are some very flashy moves like disarms and throws and what have you which you can do instead of running them through, but yeah, if you're a fairly thorough, I mean, yeah, or pommel
1: like, strikes. I love a good pommel yeah. strike. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a total dirtbag. bag. I <laughs> I'll, I'll be I'll be so close I'm like I could stab you, but I'm just close enough that I could pommel strike you too. Like this is I love <laughs> that I have two options. Messer is beautiful for that. Um, you can either cut someone or smash them in the nose, and it's yeah. great. I have um, foam. Like larping style boffer swords that have a very padded pommel, not the kind that you would like. You're still people's heads are still on necks and brains are yep. still delicate. That is never going to not be true. But if you're going to boop someone in the nose, it's much nicer to boop them with uh, some foam yep. than uh, to boop them with uh, a wood and metal pommel.
0: Yeah, it requires a deal more more sort of and not booping them with the
1: steel restraint enough that your that your that your pommel ends before it contacts their face is absolutely the ideal but if you want to get that last little boop just to just to make it funny (laughs) oh you're doing um, without
0: masks okay yeah yeah without masks definitely
1: you want um, a bit of foam the foam because like the ones that i'm talking about are big and blocky yeah Yeah, um are are very uh (laughs) <laughs> Very unlikely to go through someone's eye socket, and you, I would. You would happily
0: give them the children to play with.
1: I literally recommended one yesterday. I was I was walking through the alley, taking the garbage out. I ran into an old childcare client of mine, mm-hmm. um, someone I worked for years and years and years ago. And I was talking about how I was making, I was starting to make sword content on TikTok, and how I'm teaching sword stuff, and and he asked me what I would recommend for you know a toy sword, and I immediately recommended those those boffers, because they're fun. They feel good. They have wonderful balance. They are actually, in my opinion, very effective, just as effective as a waster or another type of training specific sword, because they're generally built by people who are familiar with what, so what you want to feel.
0: Who, who are making these? What, what's the... Um,
1: mine are from Fomethe- Fometheus Swords, F-O-A-M. Like Prometheus, but foam. Okay. Fometheus Forge. And I was super happy. You can get customized. Um, So I had them make me a pair of them that are more or less the same measurements as an average messer trainer. Um, And it's a delight to play with them and people, the other magic of stuff of training swords like that, that don't really look like swords is that people stop taking themselves so seriously. And there's all sorts of new ways that people move when they stop taking themselves seriously and they, often become better fighters because they're not thinking so hard. They're just moving.
0: Interesting. I'll definitely, I'll dig them out online and I'll put a link in the show notes. So absolutely. Yeah. They're great. Forge. Um, I, yeah. You make, make a good point about getting people out of that kind of strict formal, this is yeah. my sword style. This is how I must move thing. And again, play yeah. really helps with that. But there are limits to how Absolutely. you can play with, for example, sharp swords. So- for
1: sure, um, I think I, this makes me think of like because I've been teaching online now for the past mm-hmm. almost a year. Um, there are limits for what you can do with sharp so sharp swords when you are in a partnered training experience. Yeah, but there are a lot of things you can do. Like I actually don't own a sharp myself. Um, I've had very limited experience with them. Uh, the experiences that I have had have been really, really amazing, like like pig cutting parties, um, okay. which are wild and very uh, viscerally informative. Yeah, um, very much so. And it is... And followed uh, by barbecue, usually. You follow, indeed, yeah, followed by barbecue. Um, it's, it's always a party. There's, like the, there's the sober cutting part, and then once the pig is all in pieces, then the beer comes out. Yeah. Um, and no one no, and, and, the, and the sharps have been put away yeah. um, and there 's definitely a very specific sensation to playing with sharps that is, I mm-hmm. think even if just moving by yourself at speed with a sharp, um, I still think is different than, than with a blunt there's something there's, and I, I can't, I haven't had enough experience comparing the two to articulate it, but I remember it's a very distinctive sensation. I don't know if it's that I just it knew. articulate it. Ah, yeah, yeah, I yeah, do.
0: Because I, I do sharps a lot. I mean, to my mind, a sword is sharp. If it's not sharp, it's it's a training tool. It's, a, it's yes. not a sword, it's something else. Absolutely. Um, so the difference is primarily the consequences of an error, right? Okay. Anyone, anyone who's picked up a, has learned swordsmanship, particularly anything cutting and where you take the weapon behind you and strike, like Mm -hmm. longsword, for example, they will have had the experience of clipping the back of their own mask on the way forward or clipping their ear or running the sword over a bit of themselves that they shouldn't have done. As soon as it's sharp, that can have fatal consequences. Yeah. Okay. So (laughs) you have to you have to be completely in tune with the edge and the point in a way that you don't have to be if it's blunt. And ideally, you move past that to the point where the sword is going wherever you want it to go, but it's always still a sharp edge. So the way, the way, you, the way you move a kitchen knife is different to the way you move a hammer. Mm-hmm. Okay? And the way you move a sharp sword is different to the way you move a blunt sword, right? Because it yeah. is much more like having a very long kitchen knife. A messer is knife, right? It's just a really big It knife.
1: is. It certainly um, is.
0: <laughs> right? And it is much less like using a hammer. And when, when, you're, when you're getting to sharp on sharp practice, you are mindful of using your edge for what it's for, mm-hmm. Right? And you're just that much less inclined to start kind of mindlessly whacking stuff with it.
1: It just doesn't yeah. just feel right to do it. Yeah, that. yeah. It it when you were describing that makes me think of um, uh, just some sparring play that I did with a friend some years ago. But we had managed uh, through totally uh, a reasonable and not. I'm trying to through totally legitimate means we had gotten our hands on electrified on shock knives. Um, they were being are they, loaned to are us. They
0: restricted in some way.
1: They are. They were loaned okay. to us by um, a colleague who worked in law enforcement and had access to them in right. a totally legitimate way. Okay. Um, but we got to play with them and boy, uh, the, the movement that we had Consequences. compared to, and, and also like, and and shock knives are still very different from from uh, sharp knives, yeah. from sh- shock knives and sharp knives. Again, very
0: different. like
1: blunts, shock knives, sharp knives, three different types of movement. And one of yeah. the funniest things is that, like, uh, I've never sparred with sharp knives, but um, shock knives, the consequences are in some ways funny. Yeah, Um. Depending, especially depending on who you're fighting, because yeah. some people are less adverse than others. It um, be
0: a bit of a sadist.
1: Yeah, it does. And uh or a masochist for some. But uh it, it's it's so funny because you and I, I'm using this word metaphorically now. It is an electrifying feeling when the consequences suddenly shoot up. Yeah, totally. And I imagine that going from a training tool to a sharp. Is a similar yeah. kind of electrifying awareness.
0: Yeah, I, I, that's, yeah I, I've taught seminars where I bring a pair of sharps with me and take individual students in the class, you know, give the class stuff to do, and then take one student at a time and give them the experience of doing some basic things sharp on sharp.
1: I, I have a question for you about yeah, sharp sure. on sharp. Okay. Uh, John and I have been in this debate for about two and a half years now. Okay. And neither of us are ever going to let it go, but I'm going to use this as an opportunity. Um, I know that sharp on sharp in the bind is a very unique sensation that cannot be replicated by blunt steel. Right. Um, I, <laughs> I have these synthetic trainers that I put hockey tape on because then it creates a kind of traction. Okay. What do you think of that as a way of creating increased feedback in the bind for someone who's learning about what Fullen is, what that sensation of connection between two edges is?
0: Um, I wouldn't bother.
1: Wouldn't bother. All right. John All right, wins this one. <laughs> I, would,
0: I, would, I, would just, I would just take a couple of sharps off and give them the sharp and do it sharp All and right. sharp so they feel it sharp and sharp. The thing is, um, John, you're welcome. Most, I, I validated
1: yeah.
0: you <laughs> most most people are fairly responsible and mm-hmm. most people when you've trained them for a while, you, you know them fairly well and you know how they're going to respond and Now I do for yeah. people I don't know because you know this is my job I've been doing it for a long time I've built up a level of experience for doing it but actually, at this uh, role playing convention mm-hmm. I had a Bunch of students with me, like about eight of them, and I did a demonstration on historical sourcemanship for about I don't know, half an hour or so. So everyone in the audience was primed to listen to me, or would have left already. Yeah.
1: Yep. They and were there the on
0: purpose. It, yeah, they were there on purpose. And at the end of it, I, I and I was talking about sharps and blunts and all that. I offered to give people the experience of sharp on sharp. But the way we did it right is um, I was facing the audience. The I had four students behind me in a line, just basically psychologically holding the space. Mm-hmm. I had another student who would hand a blunt sword to the person, and another student who they would do the drill I was about to do with them, which was basically just edge on edge, move the sword around a little bit. How's this feel? How's that feel? That kind of thing. Um, and so they would, they would do it with blunts first with one of my students. And then another student would give them a sharp sword and they would then do the same drill with me. And then they'd go. And then yeah. the next person would come. We have, I don't know. I forget how many people we had. It was at least 10. It might've been 20. But these are people who most of whom I'd never met, didn't know anything about, hadn't trained. yeah, Right. But. Bad behavior only occurs in psychologically appropriate spaces where people right, feel where they space can to get do away so. with it. Right. So they've been filtered. Yeah. They were very clearly in my space. I had an enormous team making sure it was my space.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: They were willing to queue up. They were willing to do the basic drill with my student to get to this. And I didn't have the slightest problem with anyone. Not the slightest.
1: This, this um, immediately made me think of what you were talking about earlier around, like, ethical limitations. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I don't have the familiarity with working with sharps that I would feel uh, like I could design that space at this point right. in my coaching development. I've been
0: using sharps for about 15 years by that point.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that really helps yeah totally. Um, and I guess that's another example of when knowing where one's like you know for me, keeping my students safe is incredibly important, right. and the ethics of doing so extends to what tools are we using and how are we using them um, and another situation where I might feel conflicted and to where I'd have to say no is that if someone was insisting on tools that I couldn't keep my students safe with
0: absolutely yeah, yeah. and and. That's it's a specific kind of it's a specific skill, a specific set of things. Like 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 in I keep coming back to woodwork because I do a lot of it these days, because it's by colours. I have a shed in the garden and I can go there and do woodwork even during a pandemic and I can control the space completely. Yes. So it's a very it's a very psychologically safe space when in a very stressful environment.
1: I Uh, I got into cosplay this year. Right. And uh, it, it's very parallel where you, you construct your own bubble of existence. Right. And in that bubble, um, you own everything that happens.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So with different like woodworking machines, they all have their risk profiles. And there are some, there's some training you have to go through to use specific machines. And there are some machines that I, I, I worked as a cabinet maker for like five years for a living. Right. And there are some machines I will not use. Right, because they're just too dangerous and there's they don't seem the risk to reward profile doesn't make sense. And mm-hmm. but you know, selecting the tool, there is if someone is absolutely insisting on using sharps, but they but they're not ready for it or yeah. teachers ready for it, yeah. That's that's just a no. And the fact that they would insist on that would yeah. suggest that perhaps they're in the wrong space.
1: And I also think that for me in that experience, um, like the one thing that I'm gonna claim authority in in my classes is, yes. is safety. That's okay. the one yeah. thing that I'm gonna always say that I get the final say on. I, I um, What's your responsibility? And, and absolutely, that's, that's at the end of the day where my role as an instructor actually to me starts and ends. My role as a facilitator is everything else okay? Um, I, 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 John, and I both share this. We try and have a very flat social structure, mm-hmm. um, like with our with our study stuff. There's an enormous amount of agency that goes to our students um, about what we study, um, and and when we're going through uh, class stuff, we will deviate anywhere we want to. Usually, based on where the interests of the students are, there's an enormous amount of agency that we want them to have, yeah, um, because it gives them a better experience.
0: And, and we're not in the business of training soldiers who must obey. We're in the business of training duelists who mm-hmm. must be willing to express themselves and to you know literally stand up for their own personal honor. I mean, the, dueling is not an art for obedient people.
1: Yeah, and like I don't even really see. Myself focusing on 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 dueling, uh, okay. I I think of like the messer to me is the people's weapon. Um, <laughs> it is not that of of you know, like there were periods of time and places where they were used by nobles in like hunting contexts. Um, Macmillan's messer is quite something. It I I think is that the one at the Met, at the Metropolitan Museum. I don't know where it is, it's is fabulously. Uh, it's I saw one of Maximilian's swords.
0: Um, it might have been the rapier. Engraved
1: and... Extraordinary. And yeah. Um, Just, oh, my God. How is that even a sword? It's, it's, it's like a crown in the shape of a sword. Yeah. Um, I, I think I saw Maximilian's rapier, not, not the messer, but I didn't know there was a messer in the same There's vein, and now I'm really excited. I'm there so excited Maximilian that I know about a, this now.
0: The oh Emperor goodness. Maximilian, and oh, my God. It's from, like, the 1480s, 1490s, I think, if I remember Right. right.
1: Because so my even even with that the messer and and like its history comes out of you know laws restricting who could carry what um mm-hmm. knives were something that everyone really had a right and necessity to carry so you just like make them bigger
0: just make <laughs> them real
1: big um make um, just keep growing them and uh and so in that case, you're looking at a population where there's very high consequences if someone dies. There's very yep. high consequences if um, a fight would prevent someone from continuing their trade. There is. Um, but conflict was reasonably common. Um, so in my in my mind, I if I were to be thinking that I'm training people to take these skills and use them in the rough world outside. Um, oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be duelist. you know, I'm not, All right. uh, I'm not working for the King of Denmark. Uh, right. I'm working for, you know, the trade class and you, uh, okay. Le Kuchner wrote his manual for, Oh God, I can't remember. I haven't picked up that book for a few weeks now. Um, he did write it for a noble, but he very specifically, in many cases, references how what he is documenting relates to, um, relates to the lower classes. Makes it very clear the relationship between what he's teaching and them. Um, it starts out at the very beginning, where like what is called a Zornhau, which is that um, uh, dominant hand shoulder. Cross body cut downwards, mm-hmm. um, that very very conventional cut. You know, he explicitly identifies it. It's the it's the it's the cut of the people. Like um, he very much identifies that this is a very common movement, but also it is a very powerful movement in in the German tradition. It is early identified that it as a parry, as a block, as a tool. Mm-hmm. It is both offensive and defensive, and very effective at both. Um, mm-hmm. And the Messer is, um, for those who don't know about Messers, Messers are, um, a one-handed sword that have a very similar movement to longsword in a lot of ways. They're kind of, you can see bits of saber in them. You can see bits of longsword in them. You can see bits of even dagger in some ways. Um, but longsword shares a lot of, of movement with the Messer, um, especially in that downward cut. So both longsword and Messer, um. It's, it's almost this like translation guide from the common people's movement to a longsword in a way.
0: My theory about Nessa, um, where it exists in the German tradition, is in the, in the lifting our sources we have for longsword, there's very, a lot of the basics are just not covered. It's, mm-hmm. It feels to me very much like the advanced course, like yeah. sophisticated actions and what have you. So the question is, where is all? Where are all the basics? And my view is that the basics are there in the Mesa sources, because really common totally actions agree. that are missing from from Lichna are right there in the Mesa. For example, like the parry from the low left side up against mm-hmm. pretty much any attack. It's in Fiore. It's in one thirty three. It's in, or at least arguably in one thirty three. It's for sure in all of the like sixteenth century sources. But it's not there in um, Lixenau, but all the Messer treatises have it.
1: Yeah, and because Messer, uniquely for a one-handed weapon, has such an extraordinarily long um, grip. Like, for yeah. one, it's, it's, it's delightful to use in wrestling context when you're using it as a lever to break someone's yeah. grip or shoulder. Um, it's also something that you can immediately put your second hand on and recognize how that movement is just like a long sword. Mm. Um, Once you are engaging that second shoulder, having to use a rotation of the hip because you can't just single arm it anymore. You can't just use it chopping like a, like a machete. That's no longer an option when you put that second hand on. And now all of a sudden, boom, you're moving just like you're holding a long sword and, and that, um, yeah, that kind of foundation is really quite clear there.
0: Speaking of machetes, uh, my top tip for getting into using sharp messes is buy a pair mm-hmm. of really cheap machetes.
1: Again, John, here's, here's your validation. This is what, <laughs> um, that's literally what uh, we ended up during, during the process of this debate of ours, um, which is what we, we ended up playing with a little bit. Um, and because they machetes are super accessible, like yeah. they're it's very easy to get a, a pair of cheap machetes. Like it's
0: I, 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 you, if you buy them by the gross, they're about two bucks each.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And um, if you're using sharp or sharp, you will wear them out eventually because you have to keep. Yeah, they're them back. really
1: lousy. They're lousy metal. Um, but I mean, yeah. that, that's that was one of the, actually just one of the fascinating things that I who. Um, was it? It might have been when I was talking to Castile about my rapier that this came up in conversation, or maybe it was with Randy, Randy Packer. Um, the concept someone in the in the past few years made me recognize that even metal swords are consumables, just okay. like just like sharp machetes. The edge is a consumable. Um, okay. Like wasters are consumables. None of these things are actually meant to last forever and that um appreciating that was was kind of a light bulb moment for me
0: yeah they're they're tools which when you sharpen them enough eventually you sharpen them away and you have to maybe turn the steel into something else
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's still steel it's still there but
0: it's expensive but you may maybe need to get it reforged into something different or yeah yeah just like you'd see
1: you know in parallel example in terms of you know uh quality fabrics and garments. You see them repurposed mm-hmm. into other things during, for many centuries, um, yes, when those things were, really were all expensive. made by hand labor. Yeah, yeah, and now it, now we see less of expensive. that. Yeah.
0: Um, uh, okay, now we've had a, <laughs> a very enjoyable chat and we've, I've completely and utterly not followed any of my list of questions <laughs> that I was going to ask you, but that's okay. Um, let, us, let me just, I have a couple of questions that I, I ask most of my guests sure. because I kind of yeah. tend to round up on. Um, and the first is, what is the best idea you've never acted on? Mm,
1: I have a whole list of workshops that I want to write that I haven't. Um, okay. And I could pull up that list right now and, and read those off to you. I think those ones, like in terms of martial arts, that's where all those best ideas I've never acted on lives. It's not just one. There's a list of like half a dozen of them. Um, okay. Things that I've just never gotten around to fleshing out. Um, uh, I, can't, I you haven't looked at that list book. for a little while. What's so, that? Of all, just write a book instead. Oh, my God. That's so intimidating. Um. <laughs>
0: okay. Let, let me rephrase. Let me rephrase. Right. <laughs> Get those those workshop ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Write out your kind of workshop plan. Yeah. Yeah. For each of them. Then maybe <sighs> flesh out each one and see where it takes you. Add in any reference. You know you need. what? Know
1: and then the absolute while, magic of that idea is. Yeah. The first workshop I ever wrote, I was so anxious. I broke it down to five minute increments. I meticulously planned it out. Oh, I can just, I can just hear oh, the cringe. God. And no. so I would sent this to a few people being like, can you give me some feedback? I'm really nervous. And the feedback I got was, oh my God, no. Like, <laughs> this is a yeah. great idea, but what are you doing? Um, but when you talk about a book, a book is actually the place where that kind of exactly. exhaustive, anxious approach Creates a right. positive result rather than in a, in a workshop doing that will basically you know railroad students and exhaust them and frustrate them if I force them into that kind of pacing, right. but when okay. you can read it and explore it at your own pace, then that creates uh, something you can totally different.
0: Notes. You can add in pictures. You can do that kind of stuff. But but the, oh no, guy, digital, what have you done? <laughs> uh, well, I with any luck, I've done <laughs> you what I I also did for Kaya, I and
1: mean, we see how Hopefully. that turned out. I, I'm, I'm, I'm so literally I'm literally nice looking book. at it right now I'm literally looking at how that turned out it's, yeah. it's like three feet in front of me <laughs>
0: right. and for listeners who may not be aware that is fear is the mind killer if you want to know more about it's that so I have an interview good. with Kaya Sadowski um, episode five I think of this show so um, anyway don't write a book write a workshop plan maybe mm. write a few paragraphs maybe write when you've got a workshop plan and some paragraphs maybe write a chapter and then when you've done that several times then put them together and see what you've got and then you maybe notice that it's pretty much book shaped. you just need to maybe add this or add that so then maybe you write an introduction not a book just an introduction no one in their right minds ever writes an actual book they don't sit down to write a book
1: that's very comforting it's impossible. very comforting.
0: Unless you can hold the whole book in your head at once, you can't write. I, a book. Can, write a I can
1: barely hold a whole day in my head all at once.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Listeners, watch this space. We may be getting Claire back in a while on the launch of her first book. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> all right. Last question. Last question, Claire. Okay. Um, somebody gives you a million dollars not Canadian dollars they're not worth that much maybe five million Canadian what would you do with it to improve historical martial arts worldwide
1: um I spend the money the thing that has jumped my head is I'd give it to HAMA um the historical African martial arts okay association um there's some incredible things happening there and um there's some incredible people doing that research yeah uh and it and it deserves that kind of It deserves that kind of prioritizing.
0: Okay. And again, for listeners who are not quite sure about historical African martial arts, I have an interview with Damon Stiff, one of the researchers and instructors in that field, again, on this show. I Mm -hmm. forget the number. I think it's somewhere around episode 20 or so. But if you go to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast, you can find Damon Stiff there and you can listen to him tell us all about historical African martial arts. Because I agree with you, Claire. It's a fascinating field that deserves and a I, lot more attention. I,
1: I would love to see what would happen if they, ha- if like, if Demonstith could devote the rest of his life, because he, like, I've done a workshop with him. He is an incredible person. His work is incredible. Um, I, I, I want to see what he would do with that $5 million. I, like, <laughs> I'm really happy I'm really happy personally doing what I'm doing now at the scale that I'm doing it. Um, but that's what I want to see grow in, in the community worldwide.
0: Okay. Excellent. That's an excellent point of finish off. But actually I can't quite let you go just yet Claire because okay. you mentioned being an ADHD coach and I know mm-hmm. that a lot of my students um, have ADHD and
1: a lot of us do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Is there anything you can particularly, you know, maybe it's like top three points that from an ADHD coach perspective applies to teaching or practicing historical martial arts?
1: Yeah. um, I think ADHD folks have spent their whole lives being told that their brains don't work right. And um, a lot of that happened in contexts of learning. And I think re relearning how to learn in a martial arts context is a really wonderful opportunity because we can actually follow our instincts. So if we ask the questions that are popping up in our head, if we are um, given answers and, and trust in coaches who know what they're doing um, the opportunity to relearn how to learn, but in a way that's actually intuitive to the ADHD mind is really, really valuable. Um, And I think recognizing that ADHD minds are fantastic at learning and having those experiences can be really powerful um, at healing the hurt that a lot of us have experienced by being told that we can't learn right. As
0: if there was one right way to learn.
1: Mm -hmm. I think uh, the curiosity and obsession and passion of the adhd disposition is so fantastically appropriate for pursuing historical martial arts
0: which maybe why there are so many people with adhd uh-huh. doing
1: hyper focus okay. and the need to move is very complementary yeah. <laughs> yeah um
0: so if you if the instructor does not have ADHD and does not have any particular training or experience in ADHD, how would you advise them how best to help their ADHD students?
1: Learning how to self advocate is a really, really important skill. Um, and that the takes both? the student. Okay. Um, unfortunately, not a ton of neurotypical people take the time to learn how to develop those kind of translation skills and how to develop those kind of listening skills. So, self advocacy. Um, This ties into the design your own good time workshop. Self-advocacy is so important. Designing both relationships with your, with your training partners and with your coaches sometimes involves saying, this is what I'm working with. That's not going to change. I'm going to respect what's going on here in the class, but this is what I'm working with. And so you both have to learn yourself to be able to self-advocate, but you also have to believe in your own advocacy Um, and I want to I think that there's a lot of instructors out there who can be receptive to that. I know there are some who are not, um, and that sucks. But I also have met many who um, would be inspired by, by the idea of, of reframing their teaching in a different way mm-hmm. and see that as a learning opportunity for them as a coach. I, I have met those people, too. And uh, their coaching gets better when they have neurodiverse students.
0: Oh, for sure. Because if you have a large class with no neurodiverse students, either your teaching is so unfriendly to those people they've all left, or they are hiding it.
1: It is. It uh, is really unique, pretty common. It is a unique um, expression of, of Valkyrie as an as a community, and I'm counting Counts as part of that community mm-hmm. uh, because there are so many neurodivergent coaches. Almost all of us, um, we have a lot of neurodivergent students and it's a wonderful learning environment and i think that is specifically because of that neuro like that just that breadth um of different types of minds it makes a better learning environment full stop it just does
0: (laughs) that is a perfect place to finish Thank you, Claire. It's been an absolute delight talking to you today. It's
1: been wonderful being here and wonderful, like just talking to you again. It's been a minute. So pleasure and a privilege.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Claire Weems. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd also like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind the scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. Patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. I would be deeply remiss not to also mention that if you like swords and audio, then you would probably enjoy my forthcoming audiobook. ...version of George Silver's Paradoxes of Defence. I am currently running a crowdfunding campaign... ...to pay for the costs of producing the book. You can find out more at guywindsor.net forward slash silver. Join us next week for a special episode. The podcast is a year old... ...and we have a little over a podcast a week... ...for the last year, which is quite a record especially for a project that I really didn't think would go anywhere. So, but here we still are a year later. So I have invited my first guest, Jessica Finley, to do a switch around with me. So she will be interviewing me for your listening pleasure next week. Make sure you don't miss it. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have a minute, leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening and I will see you next week.